An aging population, chronic disease, spiraling costs, alongside social and technological change, have driven the need for a reset in our approach to healthcare provision. This has meant a policy push towards value-based healthcare, a strategy that promotes quality and value of healthcare services by shifting from a volume-based payment system to those tied to outcomes. But progress in the Asia-Pacific region has been uneven. Absolutely. There's a lot of different aspects of digital technologies that can support value-based healthcare. I think a lot of the fear in the providers is the fact that they feel that their payment is going to decrease by value-based healthcare, which I think the system, in order to survive, needs to show that it's not. That's not what's going to happen. You cannot really have a conversation about value-based care, in my opinion, without going into the nitty-gritty of the economics in terms of reimbursement for the providers themselves. This is Healthcare Redefined, a podcast which explores the vital issues driving digital change and innovation in the healthcare sector in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Elizabeth Suka, Senior Research Manager at Economist Impact. This podcast has been commissioned by Philips. In this episode, we will look at how ready the Asia-Pacific region is for value-based healthcare and what role digital transformation and data can play in all this. Michael Porter and Elizabeth Teisberg, in their groundbreaking 2006 book, Redefining Healthcare, came up with a powerful prescription for change in the healthcare sector known as value-based healthcare, a vision of rebuilding healthcare systems with the goal of creating value for patients. In other words, results matter more than the extent of activity in healthcare systems. The effect is not only better patient outcomes, but improved efficiencies and better models of care, while cutting waste and costs. The digital transformation of healthcare systems could play a huge role in the move towards value-based healthcare, driven by large data sets and new digital models of care. A crucial consideration will be how to incentivize systems to report patient outcomes in a standardized manner. The region could use the digital transformation by gaining better real-time data on the impact of therapies and introducing an effective interoperability infrastructure. I am very pleased to welcome my three guests today. Dr. Kyung Woo Park, President of the Seoul National University Hospital Healthcare System, Gangnam Center in South Korea. Dr. Jean-Frédéric Levesque, the CEO of the New South Wales Agency for Clinical Innovation and one of the partners for the Leading Better Value-Based Care Initiative in Australia, which brought in value-based healthcare for about 13 specific conditions. And hello to Dr. Snehal Patel, director and co-founder of MyDoc, a Singapore-based digital healthcare company which integrates private outpatient care across Asia. Dr. Patel, you operate across Asia. In your opinion, how entrenched is the value-based healthcare movement with healthcare providers in your country and across the region? So thank you so much, Elizabeth. Um, maybe I'll start off by flipping your question on its head. It's actually probably the opposite. I, I, value-based care is really at its infancy in most markets that we operate in. And most of the ecosystem has been structured around a very entrenched fee-for-service model. 
what is really interest, what is really engaging and exciting, specifically this year, and you know, talking about our home country of Singapore, the government here um, in March announced a new initiative called Healthier SG, and Healthier SG is essentially the first real stab at reimagining the entire public sector to move along value-based care principles, where a full capitation model will be employed with some of the health clusters that they have, in, they have launched here in Singapore. So that is truly the the first massive change we'll see in this market. Uh, as we operate in markets like Thailand, Vietnam, and other parts of Southeast Asia, we've had multiple conversations with the ministries of health. Uh, there's a there's a strong sense that the direction that all of these systems have to go in regarding uh, health sustainability, cost containment, will have to employ value-based care. But we are now quite excited about watching this experiment that Singapore is going to be launching very shortly. Thank you for that comment and mentioning these developments in Singapore. Dr. Park, I would like to hear your thoughts on how you see value-based healthcare playing out in South Korea. Is it in its infancy too? First of all, thanks for having me. Um, I fully agree with Dr. Patel uh, regarding his comments about this being in infancy and in its infancy in Korea as well. So we have some basic agendas here, such as DRGs that we've been dabbing with for the past few years, but it hasn't been a full-blown sort of um, value-based healthcare system. I think one thing that's become a big challenge is because it's been such a, a you know entrenched fee-for-service system, it's very difficult to get the buy-in from the providers um, in our country for value-based healthcare. And we are definitely moving in that direction, but I think it's going to be a challenge. These are really interesting comments to hear how value-based healthcare is in its preliminary phase in the region. Healthcare reform seems to be dominated by value-based thinking in places as diverse as Sweden, the US, the UK. I also feel Australia seems to be ahead of the curve here. Dr. Levesque, could you tell us about the work of your agency and what's happening in Australia? Thanks, Elizabeth, and uh, also thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Um, well... I think that there's been a, a lot of thinking and a lot of action on value-based healthcare in Australia, and especially in New South Wales, where I work and, and, and lead the Agency for Clinical Innovation. Uh, this doesn't mean that the, the journey is entirely done, but there's been a lot of um, raising awareness about the fact that we need to move towards uh, healthcare systems that really promote value for patients, healthcare systems that uh, increasingly allocate funding across different regions and different providers based on their outcomes and based on things that really will make a difference to the quality of life of patients. And it's really flipping on its head to a great extent the way we've uh, interacted with clinicians and explored with them what are the right models of care to provide the best outcomes possible for patients given the resources that we have. Um, of course, we're doing this within the funding frameworks in the country, uh, where, as you know, we've got a Commonwealth funding as well as state-based funding uh, but we're really exploring different avenues to mobilize clinicians towards those new models and also partner increasingly with our Commonwealth partners, primary care, uh, et cetera, to find uh, new ways to fund healthcare, uh, bridge some of the gaps and really bring increasing value across the system. But it's also a journey that you know will take uh, some years to fully implement. Looking at the specific conditions that you've been involved in, there is osteoporosis, diabetes, hip fracture, to name just a few. Are there any particular disease areas or procedures 
that you feel align easily with value-based healthcare. Can you comment on that? Yes, what, what we've done in, in our context in New South Wales is really to identify the clinical conditions where there were possibilities to avoid hospitalization, um, move away from surgical treatments when supportive treatments were appropriate for patients, and also revise the kind of care we provide at the end of life or for patients that you know require dialysis, for example. And it's really um, the strategy that we've adopted to target those clinical areas where First, the evidence was very clear that there were alternatives uh, to the previous models of care so that we would provide um, services that would really focus on increasing quality of life, avoid higher acuity services wherever possible, especially when those higher acuity services were not providing as much benefit for patients um, and, of course, for the functioning of the system. This has been complemented with also uh, an approach where across many uh, different clinical conditions were looking at patient-reported outcome measures, really asking patients to reflect on their quality of life and the impact of, of their care, and also exploring different ways to commission services to respond to the needs of the population. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach where we've identified uh, clinical areas where we could have short-term gains and really work with clinicians at implementing them, as well as uh, implementing across the system the key enablers that would really help us to move towards a, a more value-based approach. I like this two-pronged approach. Dr. Patel, do you think there are any particular areas that work well with value-based healthcare concepts, or are there any specific areas where you are seeing gaps? Certainly, I, I believe uh, the last comments make a lot of sense. I mean, surgical subspecialties, and if I can speak in the Singapore context, there have been several studies or actually pilots run with a capitation model. And primarily that's because it's easy to study in terms of the overall outcomes that you're able to ascertain through a, a VBC model. The, the challenge has been expanding that into a much more holistic approach toward whole person care or holistic care, including primary care. And I think that's where the challenge in particular, I think even it's quasi-cultural, the way that the ecosystems have developed in Southeast Asia Primary care has always been sort of left on the side. If you look at most of the universal health care schemes, they're almost universally approached uh, is to focus on, on sort of acute care, hospital-based care, tertiary care. Um, I think historically that's because primary care was a very difficult space for, you know, for fraud detection and management. And as a result, it made sense to, to really focus the, the sort of modest resources of the, of the, of the region on uh, hospital-based care. Thank you for mentioning primary care, which is hugely important, acting as the gatekeeper to healthcare systems. Primary and secondary care will have to work together to realize value for patients across the healthcare pathway. I'd like to shift the conversation to look at the role of the digitalization of services, including the use of big data and digital health modalities, and to what extent will these support the concept of value-based healthcare? Dr. Patel, considering you lead a digital health company, what impact do you expect? So, I mean, in, a, in short, I think it's absolutely critical. It's the, it's the glue that will bring the system together, not overstating it by saying it that way. You know, we, you cannot really have a conversation about value-based care, in my opinion, without going into the nitty-gritty of the economics 
and in terms of reimbursements for the providers themselves, right? So if you think about most of the successful models that have been pioneered across the world, so the US, Sweden, some parts of other parts of Europe, um, in almost all cases, you have a situation where the providers are not on an eat what you kill model. They're basically employees or salaried. And what that does is it changes the incentive model, right? So it allows them to sort of to prioritize new modalities of care um, in terms of virtual. I, I, and I bring this up because I wanted to set the stage for, I think, the example that everyone uses, which is Kaiser Permanente in California, is a great example of a value-based model that's sort of grown organically. Uh, and I, I reference it because I know that during COVID, and especially, you know, we were one of the beneficiaries of it, uh, that COVID had sort of made telemedicine standard. Well, that's not true. If you actually look at sort of some of the data that had come out um, from Kaiser, um, the, the late their late CEO, Bernard Tyson, said in 20, 2016 that in a year prior, so 2015 was the first year where Kaiser did more virtual visits than in-person visits. And that's because of the incentive. That's why all these different pieces around incentive models the economics, how doctors are compensated, all of that has to tie together. Kaiser is a salary-based model, right? So if you're a provider, you're not looking at value-based care as a threat to my earnings because you said my earnings are fixed. Um, the reality is I'm looking at it at an organizational level to say, okay, if we're going to share risk with the payer, payer could be a third-party payer as like a private insurance company, it could be the government, I mean, it doesn't really matter. But the fact of the matter is the structure has to come from an organizational, re, like complete top-down re, realignment when it comes to incentives, right? And then if you do that, things like virtual become obvious, right? I mean, if you're a Kaiser, you spend a lot of money developing your in-house a telemedicine service, you don't talk about it big uh, because it's not a separate company. It's just part of what you do. And you start to see those numbers that just shoot through. And this was in 2015 before anyone was talking about telemedicine, right? So I think that just tells you whenever you're able to get the, you align the incentive structures, um, digitization becomes a, just a natural sort of part of the optimization of care. And all of a sudden these things become, you know, part of the, part of the network. Thanks for raising the Kaiser example and the importance of incentives. Clearly, we need to prepare strategies to overcome barriers to implementing value-based healthcare on so many levels. Dr. Levesque, how do you see digitalization playing alongside value-based healthcare? Do you see them very much connected? Absolutely. There's a lot of different aspects of digital technologies that can support value-based healthcare. I mean... Um, you can talk about uh, all the virtual care uh, technologies that enable to uh, provide care in the home, provide care in the community, obviously uh, reducing the cost of accessing care and the time required uh, to access care for patients. And that's part of value. But also, of course, in the way we manage the healthcare system, uh, virtual technologies can help to avoid an admission to hospitals. Uh, you know, remote monitoring technologies help uh, clinicians now to be able to track in patients' houses how they're going and if uh, care needs to be escalated. And in a similar fashion, we can discharge patients earlier if we can provide, uh, you know, again, a good re remote monitoring system to reduce the cost on the healthcare system, help patients to get home earlier, which is often, very often what they want to uh, and, and that really improves their experience of care, which is a very important component of value. But I also mentioned that digital technologies are increasingly helping us to measure things that we were not able to measure before. More measurement about the care that's provided, the quality of care provided, and a better uh, capacity to actually 
link that information with the resourcing that we put in the system and therefore really better be able to identify what are the services that are better, you know, uh, value for the money invested. Um, and of course, um, these, these new digital technologies also enable us to hear directly from patients about um, how care is impacting them and if the care we provide is actually improving their health and their quality of life. And that has to be one of the key drivers of value in modern healthcare systems. Fantastic response there. We should ensure healthcare services increase value through better monitoring and evaluation so we have better evidence on what is and isn't effective. Dr. Park, in your opinion, how can we leverage data to support value-based healthcare? What's missing at the moment? So um, I completely agree with Dr. Levesque and Dr. Patel um, about you know, um, digitalization being a key point of uh, value-based healthcare. I feel that you know, um, in Korea, we have a, a system called the Drug Utilization Review um, System, where if you prescribe a certain drug, it goes into the system automatically and it gives you feedback of whether uh, the patient received a similar um, type of drug somewhere else uh, within the same period. So it, it, it restricts, um, you know, over prescriptions, you know, getting the same drug twice, three times sometimes for certain patients who uh, are doing doctor shopping. Uh, and also a lot of the, the outcomes that need to be reported for value-based healthcare to be effective needs to be reported from the, the hospitals and not just the patient-reported uh, outcomes. However, I think the challenges that we face is that, you know, the system is not um, ubiquitous. Um, it's not in every hospital. It's not in every clinic. So in order for us to actually realize uh, value-based healthcare with data, we need to be able to capture these data uh, in the different clinics and, and hospitals. Another issue is standardization of the data. And then I think the third part, and maybe most important, is um, with value-based healthcare, sometimes what happens is sort of the admin um, burden of the physicians or the providers are increased. And this is one aspect that, you know, gets a lot of pushback from, uh, from the MDs. Really good points. Dr. Levesque, how do you see digital tools helping us use data in everyday care? The reality is that the new digital tools are actually enabling us increasingly to embed that data collection into clinical care. And clinicians can now enter the right coded data as they're treating patients. And because they're using those digital interfaces, there's also a lot of things that get recorded now without even the clinicians having to do anything. You know, it's part of prescribing uh, radiological tests or prescribing drugs. And we now have systems that can basically translate this into electronic medical records and make that data available to clinicians so that they can uh, then have the information back and reflect on the care that they're providing to patients and, you know, support their own quality improvement, but also provide the information to people planning services at the local level so that they also invest in services, especially when they've got, you know, new funding, new money to develop new services so that they can invest it where it's going to provide the best benefit for patients and in regions where there's a lot of needs. So I think there's hope that really digital technologies can reduce the data collection burden and really help clinicians to, you know, spend more time with patients and spend more time with the information that can be derived by this data to tailor the care that's needed by patients. So there's a lot of advances at the moment that I would say are very promising to reduce that burden. 
Healthcare Redefined is a podcast series commissioned by Philips. And now here is a word from our sponsor. Since 2016, Philips has supported original research to help determine the readiness of countries to address global health challenges and build efficient and effective health systems. The Future Health Index focuses on the crucial role digital tools and connected care technology can play in delivering more affordable, integrated and sustainable healthcare. With almost 3,000 healthcare leaders surveyed across 15 countries, the 2022 Future Health Index focuses on how data and advanced analytics are giving healthcare providers new tools which enhance their ability to deliver care to all sectors of their communities, both in and out of traditional hospital settings. Click the link in the show notes to access the report. Value cannot be defined without the patient or the consumer. Who will define it for you and me if it's not us? Because of information asymmetry, we gave some decision rights to healthcare providers, but we did not give them the right to put in their value judgments rather than patient preferences. Any new framework to define value should look at what patients want and what will help them reach those goals. And with the advent of digitalization, these tools will be crucial to harnessing the data we need for this. This leads us nicely into patient reported outcomes, or PROMs, and to what extent these are being collected and reported on. To undertake value-based healthcare, we need better patient outcome data, be it disease registry data, real-world data, or primary care data but there has been uneven progress in this area. Dr. Levesque, what are some of the challenges around PROMs? One of the challenges that we're facing to make patient-reported outcome measures um, truly effective at changing healthcare, but also be adopted by patient, is really to see that it's not just about providing information to clinicians and patients. You need to be able to do something with that information. And if patients are coming to an endocrinologist appointment and they say that they have mental health problems at the moment or that it's the pain that is their main issue at the moment, this endocrinologist, even though they want to care that patients for diabetes, they need to do something with that information. And therefore, it's a whole of system transformation that will make PROMS really work for patients and increase the value in healthcare. And that's why we've invested in implementing PROMS in areas where we were reforming the clinical delivery so that we wouldn't face the situation of asking patients to, to say and reflect on their quality of life and clinicians not being able to act on it. Because then, of course, patients will stop. You know, They need to see the value in reporting those measures. And if you align it with the right availability of services and offer an option to clinicians to orient the patients in the right place, truly care is going to be value-based. So that's really going to be hard work for systems and a real challenge that we're facing. I certainly agree that acting on information is going to be a key element in this transformation to value-based healthcare. Are there any new initiatives in Australia on how patient data is being collected? To give an example, in New South Wales, we have uh, developed uh, a platform called the Health Outcomes and Patient Experience Platform, so the HOPE platform. And that platform is a system that links in the electronic medical record, enables clinicians to send surveys to patients, 
And before the consultation, patients will answer different standardized uh, questionnaires that relate to their uh, symptoms or their quality of life or how able they are to live a normal life. And when the patient comes into the office, then the clinician has got that information already. What it, what it enables clinicians really to do is first make sure that all of the questions have been asked and then focus on the key areas where patients say, you know, I'm not doing that well uh, in, the, in, that, in that space or I'm feeling a bit down at the moment. You know, it really enables to be more systematic. So building those digital tools to make sure that we were um, asking patients to answer those questions in the comfort of their homes or whilst they were waiting for an appointment really increased efficiency in delivering healthcare. Thank you, Dr. Levesque, for mentioning HOPE, which is an interesting initiative. Ultimately, we need to develop the right skills by training healthcare staff in how to measure patient outcomes. Dr. Patel, looking at the whole Asia-Pacific region, are PROMs being actively measured? What are the challenges here? I think the challenge is, and so to answer your question, yes, it's definitely something that is top of mind of most health practitioners, most health system um, sort of leaders, as well as uh, sort of ministries of health. The challenge, though, and I think this is where, as, as physicians and as, as sort of health-focused uh, health individuals, we have no choice but to engage and meet our customer where they're at. And I think this is where uh, PR proms sort of fall flat to some extent. Um, consumers, as, as in that parlance, patients, but consumers when they're outside the hospital, uh, want to be engaged in ways that they find sort of satisfactory. So, I, you know, there right now a lot of the problems that I see are, are, are questionnaires, and the challenge with questionnaires is people don't fill it out very much, right? So, if you look at the actual percentages of completion, you're in the single digits. And as we know with any data set, if the data set is incomplete, you've got lots of questionable. It throws the, the validity of the data set completely into question. So. You know, I think where, where there needs to be tremendous amounts of improvement really are focused on how do we make PROMS a consumer product. I, you know, for one, have not seen many products or product-driven models out in anywhere. Like This includes the U.S. I think we're still using a lot of questionnaires, um, and as a result, until we can sort of cover this gap of um, actual numbers of folks that are a percentage of completion, we're going to continue to struggle to see the value of it. So we're struggling to collect this data. Hopefully, digitalization will help healthcare systems in collecting PROM data. I would like to shift the conversation to look at payment models and reimbursement and all the challenges around this. Dr. Park, how do these need to be designed to make value-based healthcare work? What is popular at the moment? In my opinion, in order to drive a system that's been so entrenched in the fee-for-service system um, to accept value-based healthcare, you have to be able to show the stakeholders the advantage of being in an ecosystem that drives value-based healthcare. And I think a lot of the fear in uh, the providers is the fact that they feel that their payment is going to decrease by value-based healthcare, um, which I think the system, in order to survive, needs to show that it's not. That's not what's going to happen. Also, with what we were talking about uh, with patient-reported outcomes, the reason you know a lot of the patient-reported outcomes are not filled out is because the patients are not incentivized. They feel like it's a big homework that they need to be doing. The UX UI is not user-friendly. 
um, you know, it's it, it's a sort of a painful process. And that's why, um, you know, th the participation is so low. So I feel that in order for us to drive the system towards value-based healthcare, we need to look at the, you know, the, the components that are the pain points and really uh, incentivize each side of the, you know, each of the stakeholders um, to see that, um, you know, this is of value to them as well and not just to the system. That's a great response. And I agree we need to help patients better and improve participation rates. Dr. Levesque, how do you see payment models being designed to make value-based healthcare work? You know, when you look at uh, the evidence around payment models, we, we already highlighted, uh, and, and my colleagues have very well highlighted, that blended approaches have been demonstrated to be the best way forward, where a mix of fee-for-service, a mix of capitation, uh, some sessional fees, you know, really help clinicians to have more flexible approaches that really enables them then to say, you know, they can organize the services according to what patients need and not just be driven by activity. However, I do want to say that um, there has been value-based approaches that have worked even in places where changes to the fee-for-service structure has not been as extensive. Because the reality is that healthcare systems are expanding all the time. You know, populations are growing, populations are aging. There's a need for more services. And many systems where activity-based funding or fee-for-service funding has been, you know, the mainstay of the way to finance the healthcare system have used developmental funding as a way to drive value. You know, how do we allocate additional funds? How do we uh, develop new surgical centers in specific hospitals based on value. So there are things that you can do even in systems that are still based on fee-for-service, but of course, a blended approach has really been demonstrated to support, you know, again, better flexibility. You know, why would we want to pay or reimburse for services all in the same way? Whilst in reality, you know, for some patients, it's time that matters. Thank you for mentioning blended models and the inherent flexibility by that approach. This leads us nicely into my last question. I would like us to consider healthcare systems in their entirety, including preventative services and other public health functions, to boost societal well-being. Should our understanding of value-based healthcare embrace all of that? I agree that um, when we speak about value-based healthcare, we need to, you know, that that would be a more broad and macro sort of um, definition of value-based healthcare. One example that we have in Korea is um, the vaccine program that we have. So a lot of the vaccine programs in Korea um, are based on the cost-effectiveness of the vaccine program and seeing the value that it brings to the, the, the population. Another area, I think, is sort of the health promotion and screening programs that we have. So in Korea, we have a national health promotion and screening program that's available to all of our, our people. And this has led to, you know, previously a considerable amount, more than two-thirds of the, the, the gastric cancer patients were uh, detected at stage three or greater. Um, now, 90, more than 98% of our patients are being detected at early gastric cancer or stage one, which is completely curable with surgery. So that's bringing down the cost of the cancer burden as well. So that's one area that I think that we need to think about when we're talking about the, the, the macro environment in terms of value-based healthcare. 
A fantastic question and one I'm actually pretty passionate about because of, I think, two reasons specifically around Southeast Asia. One is you can't, in my view, really talk about a proper transformation of the healthcare system into a BBC approach without preventative care being absolutely at the center of it. Um, in fact, if you think about it very high level, if we're saying you, you're now asking the payer uh, to share risk with the patient and the provider, they need to be able to use all tools to basically manage that. And as we know, preventative care is a very, very critical part of that arsenal. I think the second aspect, which is what I've noticed as, as sort of American physician living in Asia now for almost 14 years, or Southeast Asia, is that the, the overall behavior of patients in this region are far more inclined to preventative care. So what Dr. Park said to me really resonated, right? I mean, you can, and in fact, Singapore, Thailand, all these countries actually have very effective preventative care or screening programs. Healthcare systems will need to bring in a common language that every person working in healthcare has a shared understanding of what value-based healthcare means. Dr. Levesque, should our understanding of value-based healthcare embrace the healthcare system in a holistic manner? Yes, no, I think, I think it's, uh, it's very important to adopt a broad all-of-system approach, but also look at care that's provided from a preventative perspective down to palliative care in the entire continuum. Um, this is important both in terms of ensuring that we understand what's the value add of prevention to actually help reduce the pressure on the acute care system, but also a value-based approach needs to be put on preventive services because they will not have the same effectiveness at actually preventing illnesses and improving quality of life for patients. I think that you know my colleagues have provided great examples of how vaccination uh, behavior change, you know, health promotion in general has really helped to reduce cost in many healthcare systems. But I do want to raise the issue of increase in screening processes that at times, unfortunately, create what we call overdiagnosis and overtreatment. It's very important that we adopt a value-based lens to screening as well, because sometimes knowing earlier that you have an affection may actually just increase the number of services you will consume and not necessarily improve your health. And there's increasing evidence about that. It's not that screening is bad. Of course, screening is important. We need to uh, catch many diseases early. But some diseases are now the subject of early screening and the demonstration of value remains to be made. So it's very important to adopt a value-based approach from prevention to diagnosis to care and palliation. It's, uh, it's really part of the entire approach. Marvellous words to end on. I certainly agree that healthcare systems need to adopt value-based healthcare principles in their entirety. Then perhaps we will see true societal health and well-being. The Asia-Pacific region is moving slowly towards value-based healthcare and it will be interesting to see who will be in the lead in five years' time and how digitalization has helped. That is it for this episode of Healthcare Redefined. Thanks again to our sponsor, Philips, and our guests, 